Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Mira Clark of Obvious Ventures and Annie Cadavy of Redpoint. Annie, Mira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. So uh, the origin of, of this podcast is, is Mira, you, you wrote this blog post called a Religious Realignment uh, a, a couple months ago, and I kind of wanted to get into it. Why don't you talk about what you were trying to do with that piece, what inspired you to write it, and what you hope uh, people uh, took, out, took from it? So I think kind of to set the stage here, at a high level, there were two structural factors that really stood out to me. And I think a third that is um, becoming more and more clear uh, as we make our way through 2020. One was this ongoing loneliness epidemic that, you know, we all continue to reference, but that at the same time kind of continues to get, continues to get worse. I think that, you know, as we all know, 79% of people today report being frequently stressed and nearly half of Americans report frequently feeling alone. And so really thinking about why this is the case, what structural support systems have existed in the past that have maybe, um, that are maybe not providing the same levels of support today. I think on the flip side, um, a trend I kind of continue to notice in my own life was this, you know, very gradual retreat of religion in the lives of so many of the people that I know and love and interact with um, on a daily basis. I think kind of the stats support it as it relates to kind of the numbers of individuals identifying um, with no religion kind of doubling over the past several years and, and this trend continuing to increase, um, particularly in the past five years. And so kind of taking a step back, um, I sought to understand kind of what have we lost with this decline in religion and then kind of how can we look to mitigate these factors uh, moving forward. I think what's interesting in today's environment is kind of as we all face COVID-19 and, and what that means in our daily lives, we are seeing individuals increasingly turning towards different um, spiritual practices, ranging from, you know, mindfulness to meaning to more community-oriented practices. And so as part of my piece, I look to distill down the realms of religion to kind of three primary spheres and identify different buckets within those spheres. I kind of thought of them as me, what goes on within my own mind, within my own experience, um, extending on from me, looking at my community, kind of what goes on within my community, anything from kind of community to ritual or inspirational engagement. And then from there, I expanded into the world beyond looking more at more at charity and morality as influential factors. So that is very, you know, a high level nuts and bolts of, of the piece, but I'm, you know, excited to discuss um, more about it and, and bring in Annie's perspectives as well. Totally. And you have a, a pie chart here where you sort of uh, sort of mapped out this unbundling of religion. You have your community, inspirational engagement, ritual, morality, charity, mindfulness, uh, and meaning. And then, you know, lots of startups in, in, in those various spaces. How, how did you, what was that process of making the map like, or how did you sort of unbundle it to different spaces or, or the, you know, things not to include? How did you sort of make sense of it in that way? I think as with so many of us, I, you know, look to take a lot of inspiration from uh, the people around me and particularly taking into account diverse perspectives around me. You know, I grew up in a household um, with a Hindu, mo- Hindu mother and a Catholic father and the practices across those two religions, you know, on the surface look incredibly different. Um, but then as you dig deeper, kind of share many of the many similarities um, and so I kind of began to have conversations uh, with individuals across religions to understand what those overarching themes um, that did begin, begin to emerge um, across groups and then look to kind of categorize them into these categories like meaning or inspirational um, engagement from there. I think this was a piece that was really looking to incorporate, you know, both ancient perspectives and new and emerging points of view. So really look to bring, you know, different generations together um, as contributors, different religious uh, affili- 
affiliations together as contributors to kind of provide at least a framework for others to leverage um, as kind of society as a whole continues to, to build upon this conversation. Totally. I, I want to go one by one through every category, but, but first, Annie, I, I'm curious for you, what's coming to mind is we're, we're talking here, you know, you've been investing for, for a long time. How have you approached some of these topics or what's most interesting uh, about this for you? Uh, sure. You know, Mira and I caught up, uh, I don't know, earlier this year, and we were um, both so excited about religion and the future of religion and what does that um, mean for consumer products and how people are going to behave. And then she wrote this great blog post, which I'm excited to spend more time on. You know, I think about consumer investing from a first principles, uh, and there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, one is where do dollars flow? Where do people invest their money? And we can talk in a second about where people invest their time. Religion is obviously a big recipient of both. I was just looking it up and uh, people in the U.S. Uh, donate roughly $50 billion a year to churches. Uh, and on average, that is um, people who are, are giving somewhere between 10 and 20% of their income, which is far more than any other kind of non base spending category, you know, you're just your home and food. Um, so if you stop, if you just start right there and you say, you, you know, there's an opportunity to invest in consumer products where dollars already exist, as opposed to creating um, or forcing a group of people to invest dollars in something that's net new, you got to believe that people are willing to spend for a form of religion. The next question might be, well, what is it that they're actually paying for? And, you know, to use, um, Mira's framework here of, you know, is this because they're giving for a charitable or um, moral feeling that they want to have or a belief that they think they should or ought to, and they're choosing their religious association as the way to do so? Um, is it something where they are in a way paying for a community or is it a way that they are in some way paying for an identity? I'm not sure I know the answer, but I, I think it's an interesting set of things to explore. Yeah. And before getting into the, the individual categories, just to, to help better ground the conversation, I'm, I'm curious, Annie, where in consumer over the last six months or year, or, or maybe even just now, are you most excited about or have done deep dives in or have sort of, you want to see more entrepreneurs and more pitches innovating on or more pitches, like where within consumer, you know, separate from religion, are, are, you, are you most excited about right now? Um, well, as we all do this podcast sheltered from our respective homes, <laughs> uh, I think that you know, 2020 is going to be a very interesting year for consumer products um, and, and services. This, you know, forcing people to be in their homes um, more remote is, you know, one of the you know, world's most interesting global consumer experiments. And obviously, it's not for a reason that any of us are, are happy for or, or would ever choose, but the implications still are going to be real regardless of um, the reason for it. So I'm again, I'm interested in, in how people spend their time, especially in an increasingly connected uh, global environment. People have choice of where to spend their time. What used to take a lot of time to do, let's just think of the errands a family might run over the course of a week, everything from feeding their children to cleaning their home to um, t you know, tra transporting themselves and their families to and from school or work. Those things are actually all getting easier. They are all getting less frictionful. You have more and more of the population who can work either part-time or now as we are witnessing full-time remote. And what that does is it gives you extra time. Uh, you know, on a personal level, I've been feeling like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I have an extra 60 to 90 minutes a day that I was spending commuting. What do I do with that? Which is a luxurious problem to have, but also something that I think uh, a lot of other folks are, are navigating too. So I think that there will be an opportunity um, for companies to build on that. Let, let, let's, uh, let's, let's get into some of the categories. So, so let's do community first. Uh, Mira, you put a bunch of different you know, types of companies here, everything from, you know, Bumble to uh, Summit Series to CrossFit to uh, AARP. How, how did it's just Java? How did you sort of you know, think about the, this category? And where's, where's most exciting for you now? Yeah, so I think kind of at the time when I was thinking about community as a category, you know, leveraging Annie's points, it came down to kind of two primary goals. One was this sense of identity. What community do I identify with? And two, how do I drive connections with um, other individuals and with groups as a whole? I think, 
you know, in today's environment where we are, you know, restricted to our own homes, but seeking connection outside of the home, particularly given kind of the importance um, on these connections from a mental health perspective, I think we're seeing kind of people hunger for community perhaps even more than ever before. I think as it relates to community, as I thought about which categories were more most attractive here, I chose to include kind of both legacy providers like a YMCA to, you know, the newest, buzziest venture-backed startups um, to highlight the fact that across any of these categories or really any consumer categories, many of the best companies, you know, can be venture funded, but all the best companies certainly do not need to be. And so as I thought about community, I thought about kind of where one could build enduring brands. And to me, those enduring brands um, are the ones that will drive kind of the stickiest levels in engagement and those that will drive kind of the most tangible benefits for their users, whether those benefits are kind of a sense of belonging and um, decreased social stress or kind of highly valuable professional connections that that might drive someone's, you know, career trajectory forward. And so highlighting, you know, again, the breadth of how we spend our lives on a day to day, kind of picking buckets where sure in the morning before work, you might be attending a soul cycle class, um, which represents a community that you very closely align with where after work, you might be swinging by the assembly to do, you know, XYZ art class or XYZ guided meditation that again, brings you closer to those that you align with, that you learn with, um, that you learn from, um, and that, that you want to identify with. And so really taking more of a holistic perspective to what community might mean. I think what the interesting shift we're seeing in community and one of the big questions that, that I'm hearing today from founders and investors alike is what formats can community take and what, you know, formats will the most successful communities take, whether that is um, digital or in real life. I think there are certainly elements of human connection that that are lost uh, via a format like Zoom, anything from eye contact to the pheromones that someone might be secreting. But as we think about scale and the ability to build kind of individual close-knit neighborhoods under a very large um, branded umbrella, I think we are seeing the increasing value of many of these digital platforms to rapidly scale and provide access to these connections to as many users as possible across the country, um, if not the world. Yeah. Annie, in a pre-COVID world, I'm curious how you were evaluating sort of community businesses like The Wing or sort of like So House for X. I don't know, there's sort of, you know, this sort of resurgence of IRL communities that are trying to be venture-backed. And my sort of question is, I have no doubt that they serve purpose and can be very, you know, meaningfully, you know, meaningful businesses. But the question was, are, are they venture scale? Like, are, are they, you know, really technology businesses? Uh, are they sort of, you do get the community to leverage that to get data for something else? Uh, you know, my, this is my question with the grant always, trying to build a community to have meaningful conversations. And is that sort of a wedge to get this database of wisdom? Or is that the, the business, uh, is the community the, the business itself? How, how do you think about this? I think I agree with what you're saying. So how I think about um, these new communities that have a brick and mortar component to them is to what extent is the community tied linearly to the brick and mortar component? And so what you'd want to see, and you could look at this for a community business, you could look at it for a healthcare business, you could look at it for a retail business. And um, what you want to see is that the revenue and more importantly, the margin of the business can expand exponentially while the um, brick and mortar component of the business is expanding only linearly or sublinearly. Yeah, I like that. I like that framing. And so are, are, is there anything, it, 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 whether in health or otherwise in that vein that you've, that you've seen that is interesting? Yeah, totally. I think we've seen a, a lot of things and, um, you know, historically uh, I have, uh, not invested in any brick and mortar businesses for the same concern. I think that has been um, for for whatever reason uh, believed in Silicon Valley for many years is that real estate businesses uh, don't scale. I think that we could probably save ourselves the time to not go down to the WeWork spiral in this case. But um, you know, even though WeWork has certainly struggled, it does prove that a, a business with a real estate component um, at its core can be a very very large business. Um, so, you know, we, 
one of my most recent investments um, actually was the first company I've invested in that is uh, that has a um, brick and mortar component. It's a business called Tend. It's a um, dental business based in Manhattan. Uh, and it's a full kind of set of services and products, both um, in real time, right? You could imagine getting your teeth cleaned or getting the cavity filled, but then you could also imagine how that might extend to broader oral health or um, products. Totally. How have you thought about uh, mental health? Uh, any have there ever been any mental health startups that you got close to uh, close to funding? Or how do you view the category? Yeah, I would love to see more companies built in the mental health category. I think it's something that people need. Uh, I think it's something that people crave. I think it's something that the healthcare system as it currently stands is not particularly well um, formed to serve. You know, per our earlier conversation, many of the mental health startups, um, at least that I've seen in the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months have been brick and mortar at their core. You know, those are just, they're harder to grow. Uh, their growth rates are going to be capped because they're capped by geographic locations. It doesn't make them bad businesses, but it just changes the growth profile that they have. You know, there have been other companies that have started that have been purely digital, right? Some of them um, have been text-based. Others have been um, video-based. So a company like Lyra or Talkspace. Um, I think those are very interesting approaches uh, to it, but it doesn't really solve the underlying problem, which is that of insurance. Um, mental health is reimbursed at a lower rate than almost any other practice because at least my understanding is that it's quite difficult um, to have a high level of certainty on um, both outcome and the quality of the provider. Uh, And so until that changes or is solved, I think that the number of of, um, products that are offered to people need to manage their cost structure in a different way. And so something like Talkspace, I think, is a really interesting example because you know, I'm not an investor of the company, but I would suspect just based on the, the type of platform that the cost to serve an individual person is going to be much lower than an in-person face-to-face um, uh, therapy session would be. And I think that's actually probably the most compelling way to open up the market. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Tavel came on this podcast and we talked about sort of the, un- she's really excited about social again and sort of the, unbun- she invested in a company that uh, is like unbundling YouTube, I think one specific vertical and also, uh, you know, Discord is sort of, you know, a vertical network that's, uh, you know, for, for gaming. Is there something in social that you're excited about or uh, how do you sort of think about that? I'm also very excited about social. We should be having a new social platform or multiple new social platforms right now. If you just look at it from kind of a generational evolution, um, it's time. We last year did a deep dive and looked at probably 60 social companies. There were a few areas that came from that that we thought were most interesting specifically around vertical networks. Um, You know, from an anthropological perspective, if you think about who are the consumers that are most likely to be using social media or adopting a new platform or service, they're people who are in, um, you know, high school to college age, mostly. Those folks not only grew up digitally native, they grew up social media native, which is a a really important distinction. Um, And so they, you know, unlike someone like me, for example, that grew up and discovered Facebook later on, it was an opening up of um, the network I could have. And that was my choice to go broader. This generation was was born into all of their things were already everywhere, you know, and in some sense, they're reacting to that, I think, and pulling back in, um, looking for something that's higher trust, higher control, higher autonomy. And so we've been looking at a lot of kind of vertical social networks in those um, spaces. I think the second example I might give, and then I'll tie it back to um, Mira's point earlier, is in business-oriented social networks. So we recently invested in a company called Bravado, similar to the idea of unbundling YouTube on a social, uh, with a bunch of vertical social networks. I think you could believe that you could unbundle LinkedIn into a a lot of um, vertical kind of business-oriented social networks is what I might call them. Um, bravado is that for sales professionals and then tying it back I think um, you know the point that that Mira makes uh, so clearly in her post is about the value of community and and really that's what all of these networks um, are providing for people and I think that in an increasingly distributed world um, an increasingly digital world this is what people are seeking uh, same 
more on the LinkedIn front, like after sales, what are other categories that you think are, are ripe, whether it's either horizontal categories like sales or sort of different, you know, like things like, you know, uh, oil and gas, like rig up. Yeah. Rig up I find to be a totally fascinating business. Um, I just had an opportunity to speak with someone who uh, had worked there and um, what I learned uh, you know, these are labor marketplaces, right? We've seen a lot of different verticalized labor marketplaces. Most of them are quite difficult businesses because effectively your LTV of a customer is low, meaning that the wage of that person is relatively low. Um, in rig up, the wages of those people are very high. And I, that was something that I had not appreciated from looking at that business from afar. But that gives you basically the margin to grow a, a very big business, even if you're doing a single placement um, certainly if you're doing multiple placements per person. So to answer your question, yes, the unbundling of LinkedIn, you could look at it by um, labor market verticals. Uh, and we've done some of that. Um, there are you know, a lot happening um, in healthcare right now, specifically. You can also look at it by uh, job description or by uh, job function, which is how we landed in Bravado. Um, I could pontificate for a long time about... Um, why I think sales is the most interesting vertical that this could apply to. Uh, maybe that's time for another podcast. What's like the 15 second version or what's the, the, the shortest version? Okay. The quick version is that sales is the revenue generator of any company. Why that's important is that companies are willing to pay for tools and services that make them more efficient because it flows directly to their bottom line. That's number one. Number two is that if you play a game, which I played with Sahil, the CEO of Bravado, where you, if I were to send you, Eric, 10 different um, sales professionals, LinkedIn websites and ask you which one of these is the best seller, I would almost guarantee you that you're not going to be able to tell me because that information doesn't exist anywhere. Um, the value that a salesperson has, if we think about, let's talk about like a software salesperson to start, though this would be extensible to other types of sales, um, is the relationships they have, the customers that they've sold, and the knowledge they have of the product or products that they've sold. That doesn't exist on LinkedIn today. It needs to exist in one place. And it's actually the true currency that these folks use um, when they're selling either inside their companies or across companies. To take it one step further, I believe that in, in, you know, in the future, sales teams will largely be decoupled from the companies that they work for today, where an individual seller instead will be, um, think of them more as their own company and they're going to sell a portfolio of products that are similar on behalf of a portfolio of companies to an end customer. And if you believe that that's the future of what sales look like, then looks like, then you need a network that is um, sales rep specific as opposed to company centric. Do you see similar opportunities to showcase? Like I probably couldn't tell on LinkedIn who's, who are the best recruiters or who are the best customer success people or who are the best, like, are there other sort of job functions that you think are, oh yeah, this would make a ton of sense for that too? There's gotta be. Um, You know, I honestly don't have a great answer for you right now. Uh, The reason I like sales is because it's a revenue generating role. And so that would probably be my first filter in thinking about where else um, there would be opportunities here. Cool. Uh, Mira, I'm curious, where are you most excited about in terms of companies that are trying to either bring community or, or solve loneliness, you know, as, as we, as we can tell from this podcast, there are multiple different approaches from you know, sort of a direct mental health approach to, you know, IRL communities, to online communities, to social networks, to, you know, various other different types of, uh, of, of wedges. W- where are you most interested? I think as we think about, you know, which businesses can, or, you know, have the highest likelihood of success uh, with respect to venture backing. I think going back to the broader space within mental health, that to us remains a really attractive category. You know, mental health is a category, $200 billion market, um, traditionally highly fragmented across practitioners, um, very challenging for individuals in need to find a clinician, very challenging to go through the insurance reimbursement process. Um, And so I think that there is, you know, a lot of room for improvement um, on both the access and transparency sides of things. Um, we are investors um, in one company in a space called Octave. It's a modern mental health clinic founded uh, by the ex-chief uh, strategy officer of One Medical. And um, what Octave is doing is bringing a, a modernized um, pairing approach to the patient um, and practitioner relationship. Um, and then, uh, you know, in sh- ensuring that patients are receiving the kind of care that they expect. If that's a Gen Z 
a, you know, a biracial female, um, Gen Z patient, there's a higher likelihood that, that her clinician will, will look like her. And so I think that there are many areas across the mental health spectrum that, that have room for improvement. What I think is attractive about this category is the increasing interest, um, from a, a lot of payers, both kind of benefits managers um, and more traditional insurance payers to provide these services. I think that, you know, we're continuing to see data come to light highlighting the importance of, um, you know, one's behavioral health on their performance in the workplace, um, their general sense of well-being. And so I think that's an area that that we like. I think that, you know, as we think about the areas that will be most resilient, you know, in the event of a downturn, it's areas that are perhaps not as dependent on consumer cash pay um, to keep the lights on. And so I think that's one area that that we believe is right for disruption and prevents a lot of opportunities um, for rapid scale for the right players. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, Going back to our social thing, I, I think today there's not like imagine if chat roulette had come out today like i, I feel like there's an opportunity no, i've talked about this with many friends it <laughs> would be crushing it in this environment yeah and there's just an opportunity for something like fun to come out that sort of like just grabs everyone's attention yeah i think what's interesting on the chat roulette um perspective just to digress a bit is the fact that with a platform like chat roulette individuals are meeting people that they um you know are outside of their natural networks. I think as we look at behavior across Gen Z, which to Annie's point is perhaps the highest likely, you know, the demographic with the highest likelihood of adopting a new social network, they are very open to becoming best friends with individuals that they've never met before in real life. I think there's a double digit percentage of them that identify a best friend in fact that they've, that they've never met in person. And so I think you know, hopefully something with slightly greater safety precautions than a chat roulette, but something like that, I think, what would be very interesting to experiment with um, in the near term. I think um, Zoom bombing has become a thing. (laughs) I've gotten Zoom bombed. (laughs) Have you? (laughs) Yes. We hosted a a freestyle rap session last night on Zoom. I I did start up those chat roulette for rap battles in like 2012. We brought it back over Zoom. We tweet out the public Zoom link and uh, not the most savory characters (laughs) come, come into it, but, but that's okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, well, on the on the mental health thing for a sec, yeah, because there's a couple ways to handle loneliness. One is sort of like you know everybody gets a therapist or coach or some version of that. Others is you know new ways of finding friendships or, or relationships. On the mental health front, I'm curious if you guys think there's an opportunity to sort of create a marketplace of like listeners or sort of uh, non-trained, uh, not therapists because they wouldn't be therapists, but so, so, can that function be sort of unbundled? Uh, in a way, Andy, you, you've done Marketplace forever. Have, have you looked at that? I mean, I'm sure there's seven cups of tea. Is, is something like that interesting? Because, you know, not everyone can afford $150 an hour or needs that, like, training. Um, what, what do you think? My favorite thing about Marketplace is that, they, is that they democratize access for both sides, both for the people that are seeking the service and those that are seeking to provide the service. So with that as a backdrop, I would say there's no reason why there couldn't be a Marketplace for... Um, let's say like, um, I, I think of it as like citizen scientist, um, mental health professionals, um, to help one another. I think the challenge there, um, would be trust. Um, that's usually the challenge in building a marketplace candidly though. Uh, so no, I've not seen anyone who's, who has built that. I'd be very curious to learn more about it. I think within that space, we are, you know, seeing slightly more in the very early stages, companies like TopKnot um, focusing specifically on women or NeedHop taking a broader population, um, thinking about marketplaces for effectively coaches and empowering individuals to serve as coaches for one another. You know, hopefully these platforms look slightly more updated than, than a Craigslist, but at the end of the day, it is very similar to Craigslist, but kind of transitioning from products to services, um, with that service being coaching. Um, so definitely I think something that would be interesting to, to monitor, um, over the next few years. Yeah. And then what about, uh, dating itself? Uh, have you seen anything interesting dating in the last year or could you imagine yourself making a, a startup investment in that space over the next couple of years or does, you know, Tinder slash match really just have it on lockdown? I'm happy to go. I think, you know, we will definitely see more in dating, over the next uh, few years or even quarters, I think many of these 
the existing dating apps are, are pivoting to ensure that, you know, their FaceTime capabilities or whatever are up and running. At the same time, I think there have been a number of new entrants into this space that are focused on IRL connections. I think going back to Annie's point that looking at someone's LinkedIn or looking at someone's dating profile doesn't necessarily tell the whole story, that are looking to do a better job of kind of uncovering who this person is at their core um, and leveraging those traits to match compatibility. Um, I think, you know, as we think about, you know, serving people's full sets of needs versus simply kind of matching Instagram profiles to one another, it'll be an interesting trend to watch. Annie would love to hear your take though. I'm curious to hear. Yeah. No, I think, um, you know, going back to Mira's blog post in the community piece of the pie, you know, you have Bumble and, and I'd put other, um, dating apps in there. Dating apps are forms of social networks, uh, in my opinion. And, uh, they also just like any other social network, if you think about Facebook as the broad social network for quote unquote, everybody recognizing, of course, it's not that what has then come, of course, are these verticalized social networks for people that are more like-minded or they feel more similar, they feel more comfortable speaking with just a, a smaller selection of folks. Um, I think in dating, you see the exact same thing. It's another maturing market. You start as a kind of broad platform. And now each of these different dating apps, uh, the brands stand for a different type of community or a different set of values. Sometimes those are productized into, you know, who has control over who says yes to what, or if you can offer digital goods to one another, or, you know, what your age or what your sexual orientation might be. Those are just examples of filters that you can put onto a social network. And if you believe that most people are searching for somebody who is like-minded in some sense, and um, I think we'll continue to see those, uh, I would not be opposed to making an investment uh, in a dating company. Um, I think the question would be, again, in a maturing market where there are a lot of other um, uh, opportunities for people uh, to, you know, find new people to date. The question would be how, you know, is there a big enough opportunity for someone to carve out a new one? I think one other area just to dive into really quickly within the dating space is simply looking at the market itself. If you look at millennials kind of four years ago, five years ago, 20% of millennials were single. Today, over 40% of millennials are single kind of as they are, you know, all sheltered in place in their homes, either with their parents or alone. I think that kind of that desire to connect with, with a life partner is likely to increase. And so as we simply think about kind of demand from the market, I think it's certainly something that we're likely to see kind of continue to grow over time. I want to transition to inspirational engagement a little bit. A couple of ways I look at it. There's sort of this like calm, you know, for X, uh, you know, calm did it for, for meditation. There's a whole bunch of content meditation. There's obviously like a bunch of stuff related to like sexuality and relationships. Um, with sort of a, like calm sort of like product, uh, but, and then also like just business or other learning, but yeah, that sort of audio uh, engagement. And then, the, and then there are things like masterclass or out school or other sort of, you know, um, you know, continuous learning. Uh, you know, this is somewhat different, but Andy, you, you invest in guilt. Mira, what, what is exciting to you? Uh, ex- exciting to you there? I guess as I think about inspirational engagement, I think what all these platforms have in common is that they are leveraging stories to drive home lessons and frequently to highlight kind of first principles of specific areas. You know, historically within the church, we certainly saw this with sermons on Sundays. And I think that many view these as kind of grounding forces or sources of truth of how, how they should act in both their personal and professional lives. I think in the absence of kind of those you know, guide rails in place, many do feel increasingly lost and are looking for kind of uh, different leaders within the different areas of their lives. So I think that, you know, what is important about the names listed is that they highlight a, a wide breadth, both in terms of kind of the demographic psychographics that they target, as well as kind of the areas that they're focusing on anything from core kind of professional leadership development to how to be a new mom, to how to understand um, the best way to care for aging parents. And so I think kind of providing, going back to the coaching dynamics, some element of coaching from afar, as well as kind of a, a line of sight to, to a better future is, is what many of these um, have in common and what I think excites many people about the space. Uh, Annie, how about you? 
So one area of uh, inspirational engagement that is closely aligned, I think, with religion that Mira and I have actually talked about a bit in the past is astrology. Uh, I think astrology is a bit of both of those things. In some ways, uh, it is a religion in the sense that it is um, a guiding voice. It is something that brings people together. Uh, it is something that can instill values. It's something that informs how people make their decisions. It can be a community in a very real way. At the same time, it also, like religion, um, is inspirational uh, many times, right? You know, the horoscope column in the paper that used to come to my house every um, weekend was something I used to read as a kid because I found it so fascinating to see, oh my gosh, I'm a Virgo. What's happening to me in the month of February? (laughs) Uh, And I think that that is a very fundamental human curiosity and whether um, astrology is what people turn to or another form of religion or another form of guidance. I think that there's a lot to be seen there. Totally. Uh, Andy, one, one space you've invested quite a bit in is, is fitness. Uh, you, you did Tonal and, and you did uh, ClassPass. How, how have you, you sort of seen the, the fitness landscape? You, you've done well in it, but it's a space that people have had a, a VCs have had a hard time with. Yeah. Um, I could, you know, give you the list of companies I didn't invest in that I wish I did. As I'm talking to you right now, right behind me literally is my Peloton that <laughs> I had kind of, uh, you know, forgotten about. It was a piece of furniture and now is my new best friend um, in this recent um, shelter in place. So, you know, how do I think about fitness? Um, I think building a really large company in the fitness category is hard. Uh, and the reasons that it are hard, that it is hard are the same reasons that, going to build an exercise routine or exercise every day is hard. Um, It's something that people are generally more aspirational about than they are um, truly able and willing to build a routine out of. Um, And that routine is tied to recurring payments. Um, So we've seen a lot of digital only or digital first platforms uh, that are sometimes their marketplaces connecting um, individual people with individual instructors or small classes Um, Sometimes they're connecting with uh, personal trainers uh, or people who can help them build kind of a personalized uh, workout plan or maybe moving into something more more holistic that might include um, food and general wellness. I think those businesses have a challenging CAC problem uh, while they're growing. Um, Partly, you know, that partly is a commentary on all consumer businesses right now where you have a really finite set of channels to go and pay for new people. Uh, And so your average CACs are are much higher than they have been in years previously. And also because in this case, it's actually a very hard psychographic to filter for. Uh, It's not like you're just looking for men ages 25 to 27 who live in X, Y, or Z city. And, you know, the, the mindset of a person that's looking for this kind of solution is a bit harder to find. And therefore that translates to a higher CAC. Would that be your same analysis of, I guess, what wellness more broadly, or are there subspaces within wellness or types of things that you're particularly interested in? So I think about wellness increasingly as um, I think about it on a spectrum of wellness to healthcare and think everything in between. This is more commentary, I guess, on the healthcare system, right? As you have more self-insured employers, you have higher deductible plans, and you have a group of millennials that are coming into the healthcare system for the first time and running into the shitstorm that our health system, health system is. There is a reaction and a desire to take control over one's healthcare that I don't think has existed in the same way before. And, um, you know, those companies that are building in the space are on a range from a true healthcare company, which I would define as a place that you go for a product or service, and it is um, in both informed where you go and then paid for with insurance. Uh, and then there are those things that are, um, you know, paid for out of pocket purely at the discretion of uh, the individual. That now is, you know, it's a, it's a range of things. So, you know, I'll take a, uh, an example um, of a company like Parsley Health. I'm not an investor in, in Parsley. I find it a very interesting business, though, because it is in one part a medical system, but in one part is really a wellness play. Going back to our earlier conversation about brick and mortar businesses as venture bets, um, you know, again, there, I think there's reason to believe a company like that could um, scale their revenue and margin disproportionately to their physical footprint, given the categories that they can play in across healthcare and out-of-pocket pay wellness. Totally. I, I want to transition one of the other uh, segments you have here, Mira, uh, charity. Is there going to be a venture 
backed company or sorry, venture scale company that uh, enables people to give more charitably. We've seen, you know, lots of sort of angel lists for, for donations or lots of those different types of companies. Will, will any of them work or, or where, where are you excited to hear from a venture perspective? I think Jerry's still out, which is not a great answer to your question. I think that there are inherent challenges to monetizing the broader charity space. Obviously, many players have tried to do it, but I think reaching meaningful scale um, and kind of, uh, you know, a potential exit for a venture type investment in this space will be incredibly tough. I think that said, on the monetization side, the area that I'm probably most excited about within this space is kind of any time of type of monetization around tipping. I think that you are seeing more of these voluntary payments coming into play in numerous spaces um, and consumers, you know, increasingly showing a willingness to pay there. And so, you know, I think point to us, do I, you know, do I think some venture scale business will will reach a billion dollar exit in this space? Likely no. That said, it doesn't mean that it's not, not a meaningful category or one that we should, um, continue to be aware of as we think about where consumers are focusing their attention, both from a, a time um, and, and wallet perspective. You know, it's interesting, Mira, you know, your post here has sort of, you know, it, it talks about the unbundling of religion. You know, there's a famous Barksdale quote of people, you know, only make money by unbundling or bundling. Is there a world in which all of these get bundled up into, uh, you know, this one big, like, is there a world in which it's like you, you mentioned earlier, you wake up in the morning, you go to SoulCycle, but that that same company also like feeds you and the same company is also like a co-working space and that same company also uh, is like your, <laughs> where you do, you know, your mental health stuff, your confessions. Like, is there sort of a, a new age religion that's, that's not a religion or is there sort of like, I don't know, some enterprising entrepreneurs who are like orthodox religious who come and try to like bundle all, all of this stuff? H- how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, we've seen so much unbundling that few of us can keep track of, of all of our subscriptions and are experiencing um, a sense of fatigue across the broader space. I think that, you know, we are really excited about the rebundling of, of some of these categories. I think, you know, you're seeing it um, on the brick and mortar side with more interdisciplinary focus clinics. I think digitally, there are companies like Modern Health that are they're bringing together anything from more traditional therapy to, you know, lighter touch meditations. And so I I do think that, you know, there's certainly um, market appetite for rebundled solutions as it relates to building a platform that serves as one's sole identity. Um, I think, I personally think that's less likely. I think that, you know, as we all work in these environments that advocate bringing our, our whole selves to work or what have you, I think that we are increasingly seeing that individuals, uh, you know, are identifying with, you know, three to five to seven plus specific uh, corners of their identity. And I think asking them to choose one and, and exclusively um, following kind of the principles, um, beliefs and practices of, of that single identity it is uh, feels slightly out of the 1950s. And I don't necessarily know if that's a reality that, that we want to or necessarily should go back to. Andy, Andy what do you think? Will you re- rephrase the question to me? Sure. Is there going to be sort of a, a rebundling of these aspects in some ways? You know, one way could be a, you know, a company like that not just provides your workout routine, but also provides your meals, also provides co-working, also provide, I don't know, rebundles sort of a, a bunch of these different categories in a secular way or in a, in a religious way. Um, but I, I think it is interesting. You know, we do have new sort of big tech companies every 20 years, every 30 years, even with all of their data network effects, they get disrupted. Whereas relig- traditional religions don't have data network effects. They're just stories. Right. Um, and they, you know, last hundreds of years or longer. Um, and we, the new ones don't really emerge. You, you could imagine sort of like Pixar, I don't know, some great storytelling organization. I'm, I'm sort of going off the rails here. What, what, what's coming to mind for you? Um, we should start a religion. It sounds like. (laughs) I think that's the conclusion of this podcast. (laughs) Um, So now this is a PSA for anybody who wants to join Mira, Annie and Eric's new religion. Yeah. Um, We'll figure out who's CEO afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let's see. You know, from a Maslow hierarchy of needs perspective, we're always going to have religions uh, and we're because they're a form of belonging and identity. And in some ways, more importantly, going down the pyramid, they're a form of safety for people. 
One of my favorite books that I read recently uh, is Sapiens. I think many folks have read that one. Uh, One of the key things I took away there is the idea of beliefs is one of the things that corely makes us humans. The idea that we can persuade one or another or use our imaginations to believe something that um, actually usually doesn't have much factual basis to it, or rather has been a story that's been passed down relative to something rather than something that we've seen firsthand. That I don't think is going to change. That's how we're built as people and what those things end up being if they continue to be the core religions of this uh, country and this um, world, or if new ones emerge. Uh, I think new ones certainly will emerge. The question is kind of how big will they become? When something has a cult audience, uh, you know, quote unquote cult audience, like I'm following this uh, product, Rome Research, and there's a thing called Rome Cult. It's like a productivity tool, but there's a hashtag called Rome Cult, and people like are really excited about it. But then their the, the products, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Girl Boss, but my understanding is that it had a you know, popular audience, but didn't sort of sustain it. I'm not sure. But like, how do you think about things that when they have sort of cultish audiences or really passionate audiences, whether they, that's defensible or whether that's lasting versus just sort of a flash in the pan? I think a cult following is one of the most important early indicators for a consumer product. Uh, and the reasons is that it doesn't... It, it not only demonstrates product market fit, but it demonstrates virality uh, and to grow a, grow a business that's actually more important uh, than what a small group of folks might have to say about it. But if you can find a type of product and a group of people that are effusive about it, that is a really important early indicator in any consumer company. Totally. Uh, do, do you have a framework for determining whether it will last? The short answer is I don't have a framework. Um, Maybe a different way of answering that question is um, in in thinking about the question of will that early consumer excitement uh, last over the course of many years and also will it extend to other groups of people other than these kind of first early adopters? I, I would think about that in two ways. The first would be what would be my expected LTV of this product? So a, a business like um, food delivery, for example, quite timely. You know, if you think about early DoorDash users, they were suburban parents that were feeding their family. And instead of piling 2.5 kids in the golden retriever in the back of their car and driving downtown to pick up food, they were paying somebody to bring it to them. Um, that is a really long LTV customer because the need of, or at least high potential long LTV customer because the need of feeding a family, you know, over the course of days, weeks, months, years is pretty obvious. Um, as opposed to maybe a counter example would be, um, you know, a single transaction product. Uh, once you get it, you have it, and you're going to tap out a market eventually. I would think about that those two types of companies quite differently. How is this all different in a, a post-COVID era? Imagine, you know, six months from now, a year from now, we're sort of back into our our regular worlds. What what's changed? Uh, you know, Mira, you had a, a blog post. Maybe we start with you on the experience economy. And I'm curious, you know, six months from now, a year from now, you know, when we're in theory back, what behaviors are going to be different as a result of this, having had this COVID experience in terms of IRL versus, you know, digital? Yeah. So I think I would kind of answer that in two ways. First, I think it's important to understand the shift that we could see in terms of the broader kind of social personal branding space. I think over the past few years, it's been increasingly popular to have the perfect Instagram post um, in the perfect location with, you know, the very manicured outfit, aesthetics, what have you. I think our illusions of perfect are are passing very quickly as, as COVID takes over. You know, moving forward, I, I don't know if we are going to see that scene, those kind of same goals across society. And so in a society that is perhaps more focused on, you know, picking up the feces, um, kind of taking care of their families, meeting their very basic needs, I think that we will return to kind of more of the the fundamentals of what, what makes someone healthy and happy, those being anything from physical activity to social interaction, um, to poor diet, to, to broader healthcare. I think that, you know, this the this period of isolation that so many of us are feeling is driving people to focus more inwardly and understand kind of what those needs are and how they can best meet those needs coming out of this. Um, I think, you know, we are being pushed to our limits in terms of incorporating 
um, the digital components if and when we can slot them in to, to alleviate some of these pressures um, during the shelter-in-place period. I think it will be very exciting to see kind of how many of these primarily IRL uh, experiences are able to provide a little bit more flexibility for users um, as they kind of continue to, to incorporate some of these digital uh, dynamics um, once we are all uh, back in the wild again. But but what exactly that looks like, um, I'm not sure, but but certainly excited to see. Any 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 last reflections from you on what post COVID life could could look like in terms of changed consumer behavior or any reflections of what we've uh, spoken about thus far? Yeah, I think fundamentally, everyone will now ask the question, does this have to be in real life? Does that doctor's appointment have to be in real life? Does that meeting have to? Does that uh, class? Does that, um, you know, fun social activity? All of everything that people have done in person will be up for question of could this actually be done remotely? And is there a reason why I actually might prefer it to be remote? Um so, you know, a few specific things I think are very interesting. One is uh, telemedicine. I think this is going to move what has already happened in telemedicine forward even more dramatically. The second would be this idea of kind of blending work and family and life. When you're working from home, it all becomes kind of the same thing, you know, running in between Zoom meetings to feeding your kids lunch to walking out the door and taking a walk in between meetings. Like, it's a, it's a a very, it's a much more mixed media way of living than it is um, compartmentalized. And then the third related to that is for years, there's been a lot of conversation about the consumerization of enterprise. And I think given that last thing I mentioned, we will see more kind of enterprisation of the consumer, meaning uh, we want to bring the productivity of our work lives into our home lives uh, and I think that's going to be a big opportunity for companies. Totally. I, uh, I think that's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, my guests today have been Mira Clark and Annie Cadavy. Uh, Mira, Annie, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If entrepreneurs are working on anything interesting, uh, you'd be lucky to have uh, Mira and Annie uh, on your cap table or even uh, get a meeting with them. Uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Annie. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.